Amen. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hides us and he blesses us and he helps us. Well, good morning. The sun is shining. I'm so glad. In Daly City, where we live, it was foggy. <laughs> it was foggy. And I was like, ooh, do I want to get out of bed? Ooh, I could just lay here. Ooh, just it feels so good. But the joy of the Lord has to motivate us to come out of his house. Amen. All right, so we are in uh, the book of Psalms this morning. We'll be looking at Psalm number one, a very famous portion of scripture, Psalm chapter one. And we are going to look at the happy, prosperous life. I think everybody in here would want to say of their life in the Lord that it's happy and it's prosperous, spiritually prosperous for the Lord. And we find that in Psalm number one. And thinking about this idea of happy, happiness and prosperous, what has been some of the happiest days of your life? I know for several people in this room, some of our high school and college graduates, it's when you go, da, 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 you march in and they call your name, Brian Kelly. I have four earned degrees. Do you know why I did it? Because I like walking down the stage and hear, Brian Kelly. <laughs> and then you walk up and you shake their hand and you walk off. I love that. But I got robbed. My last degree, my music degree was in the middle of COVID and there were no graduations at San Francisco State. So I didn't get to hear Brian Kelly. For the third one, they did a group graduation in 2020 after COVID was all over and everybody was in the auditorium and they recognized the people that got awards. But I got to sit there in my little, my little suit and saw my classmates that I hadn't seen in two years. But uh, that's a happy day when you graduate. Whew, I'm done. But then the scary part's, what am I going to do now? <laughs> what job? I don't have a J-O-B. What am I going to do? So it's happy. It's graduation. Or what about your wedding? My wife and I were married here. Pastor Ennis is my father-in-law. He married us. And it was a very happy day, but you could watch our wedding video. I don't smile at all in our wedding video. And you can see when they do a close-up, Deborah's, my wife is doing, trying to get me to smile. Because I'm, I'm sort of the class clown of my family. I'm the funny one. And there's so many home videos of me doing dumb things. I wanted to be proper on my wedding day. I didn't want anybody to look at that. Look how you acted on the wedding day. So I was very, and plus I was scared. <laughs> I was scared, but it was a happy day. Then I gave her the world's longest kiss. When they say you may kiss your bride, then a big smile came on my face at the wedding. Or for some people, it's the birth of their children or their grandchildren. And there are some great grandfathers and mothers in here, great grandchildren. That's a happy day. Or the day you get a promotion or a raise. Uh, your birthday is happy. There's a little group of us that are born in May, and we used to get together when Olive Garden was open, and we would get together and have May birthday together and bring each other dollar store presents, and we would swap all around because we loved the month of May. Birthday was a happy time, and I'm looking and I see the May babies. We used to have a May baby party. We would go to Olive Garden the May birthdays just because we like having a birthday party. That's a happy day. Or a holiday, Christmas vacation, summer vacation. Or your last day when you clock out for the last time and you are retired. That's a happy day for lots of people. So happy days. Do you have that type of happiness and joy in your life spiritually each and every day? That should be our goal. We don't always hit it, but that should be our goal. And we see that as we look at the Psalms this morning. Psalms is the hymn book of the Old Testament. 
And I think it's interesting that God opens up his hymn book with the Psalms on a psalm of how to live a happy and prosperous life, how he opens the whole book. Psalm number one, topic, happy, prosperous life versus sad, wicked life. He draws that contrast. Out of all the topics the Lord could have chosen to begin with in his hymn book, he chose to deal with happiness and success to encourage his people. The opening psalm, the opening song of the book of Psalms. Many of the psalms were written by King David. However, Psalm 1's author is unknown. One of the songwriters of Israel was inspired to give us this wonderful psalm, a psalm about happiness. So if you have your Bibles, or on your iPad, or on your device, or in your brain, you have it memorized, let's turn to Psalm number one, and we'll read through it, or I'll read through it for us, the text, and then we'll jump into studying it this morning in Psalm number one. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like, excuse me, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in their judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So a clear contrast between an untarnished, prosperous life that lives in accord with the word of God and loves God and walks with God, contrasted with the life of a godless person who ultimately perishes. The Lord sets out in his, in his songbook, this is happiness, this is prosperity, this is blessing, this is the way to destroy your life. He draws that contrast so that you never forget it. And if we could drive down the, the main point of the book of, uh, or the, the book of the, Psalm number one, chapter number one of the Psalms, the source of true happiness in life is only found in the Lord. You will not find it anywhere else on this earth, no other philosophy, religion, educational system. There's nothing apart from the Lord. True happiness, the source of true happiness in life is found only in the Lord. And we see in verse number one and two, a man is happiest when he walks with the Lord. Now it says blessed is the man, but it's men and ladies. They're just showing, they're just using the word man there because it's mankind here in the scriptures. But a man is happiest when he walks with the Lord. We see that in verses number one and two. He's happiest when he walks with the Lord. The Hebrew word blessed there means a heightened state of happiness uh, as the joy and blessings of God in your life. It's literally saying, oh, how very happy is the man. It's emphatic. It's the happy man. He, a graduation every day, a birthday every day, spiritually he is happy. He's rejoicing in God. Man is happiest when he walks with the Lord. Now, those two, verse, those two verses there, they divide up into two big ideas. Man is happiest when he walks with the Lord first because he's happy because of what he avoids in life. What a strange thing. He says, the Lord says, you're happiest if you stay away from this and you embrace this. And he lays it out for us. So it's interesting. He starts with the thing we're supposed to stay away from and avoid. Then he talks about the thing we're supposed to passionately embrace in our lives to find that blessedness or that happiness. 
And we see that in the scripture. He is happy because he avoids certain things. The first thing he avoids there in the scriptures is the counsel of the godless. Now, I think it's interesting. All throughout the Bible, it says ungodly. Someone who's ungodly is someone who does not go toward God's ways. That's someone who's godless is how we would say it today. That someone is godless. There's a movie called The Help. And in the final scene, uh, the lady, Viola Davis, playing the maid, she looks at that hateful, evil woman who has backbit and was evil to everyone in the movie. And she looks right at her and says, you're a godless woman. And I wanted to stand up and clap. (laughs) Because that one character, she was mean. She was mean to everybody in that movie. And she just calls her down like Nathan calls David the prophet. You're a godless woman. I'm like, yes, that's right. Amen. That's what we have in the scriptures here. Someone who is ungodly, they're godless. Either because they're ignorant, they don't know who God is. Or they say, I don't want you in my life, like the typical atheist. I don't want you in my life. You're not real. You don't exist. Well, how can you say someone doesn't exist? They have to exist for you to deny them. So he exists. So that just puts them out of business, right? Avoiding the counsel of the godless. The psalmist here recognized that the godless give advice and counsel based upon their own flawed plans and schemes in life. That's what counsel means there. It's the plans and the schemes and the direction of your life. And based on that godless life, they give direction. They give plans. They plan schemes. They place themselves at the center of their universe. And only what matters to me matters. How I see it. My truth. My way. I'm my own God. That's godlessness. And the psalmist says, blessed is a man that walketh not in that counsel, the counsel of the godless. So how can we recognize this? Integral to that Hebrew word uh, in the theological word book that I looked through, there's four characteristics of someone who is godless, how you can avoid this. What do you look for if we're supposed to avoid it? How do we know it when we see it? You can recognize the godless by their works. First, they're always doing wrong to others. And just walk away unscathed from the consequences of the actions. They're always doing hateful, bitter, rotten, backbiting, hateful things to others. And they just walk away. I didn't do that. I didn't know anything about that. You see this in politics all day long. You see it in businesses all day long. They do hateful, evil, backstabbing things to people. Then they walk away, no flies on me. I'm unscathed. I don't know anything about that. And they walk away and they seem to get away from it. That's a godless person. Mark it down. Second, they're always devising evil plans and agendas against others based on nothing more than their pride and their arrogance. Always devising evil plans, always have an evil agenda, always backbiting and backstabbing others just because they're pride and arrogant and they know they can do it. And they walk away unscathed. That's a godless person. They're always telling lies and half-truths with the intent to harm and injure others. Now, catch this. Whenever my mom would say something, if she made a mistake, my dad said, you're a liar, you're a liar, that's a lie. No, and I picked that up when people tell me something that ends up being wrong. I said, that's a lie. But Deb and I were talking about this. It's not a lie if you made a mistake, an honest mistake. If you make an honest mistake and your intent is not to harm or injure another person, it's not a lie. It's a mistake. You say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, and square it away with people. But the godless rejoice to tell lies and half-truths with the intent to harm or injure others. 
lies and half-truths are the words of godless people. Lastly, they're always like their father, the devil, who lies, tells half-truths, and makes false accusations against others to destroy the people of God. The three ways the devil works. Every counselor will tell you this. He tries to convince you of lies, like Adam and Eve in the garden. Half-truths, like Adam and Eve in the garden. And false accusations, like Adam and Eve in the garden. Who is God to tell you this? False accusations against God. You'll be as God. You'll know good from evil. You'll find your own potential. You'll find your own life if you just partake of this forbidden fruit. Right? Lies, half-truths, accusations. Godless people act just like their father, the devil, in that way. Now, the Bible tells us the truly happy person avoids the counsel of these people. They realize these godless people are to be pitied, and they're your mission field, not your mentors. They are your mission field to reach for the Lord, not your inner circle of closest people who mentor you, who guide you, who give you advice, who who help guide your life and give you counsel. The truly happy mind avoids the godless. That's their mission field, not their mentors. And a happy man recognizes that. He stands out in the counsel of the ungodly. Secondly, he avoids following the lifestyle of sinners. The scripture says there uh, doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He avoids that. What does that mean? Stand there is the key. In the Hebrew, stand there means to humbly and respectfully present yourself to service for something or someone. Now, why would a happy person that walks with God, God is the focus of his life, why would he humbly and respectfully present himself to serve sin? It doesn't happen. And to serve sinful things. Stand there means, again, to humbly and respectfully present yourself in service to something. So when it says he stands not in the way of sinners, he's not presenting this stuff, saying, I'm a candidate to sin. I'm open to whatever the world, the flesh, and the devil wants to throw at me. I'm open to it. I'm humbly submitting to it. I want it in my life. A godly man doesn't do that. A godly woman doesn't do it. A godless person does, but a godly one doesn't. And because they don't, there's happiness and prosperity in their life. Sinners there literally means evil wickedness. It means to be a criminal. So why would you humbly submit yourself to do those things that breaks God's laws and man's laws. It says there in the scriptures that they stand in the way. That means their actions, their words, their attitudes, and their habits. They don't submit themselves to the actions, words, attitudes, or habits of those that sin against God and break man's laws and breaks God's laws. Therefore, a man or woman is truly happy in life, does not humbly present themselves to follow those actions, words, attitudes, or habits that break God's laws and rebel against man's laws, and enthusiastically encourages others to do it. You know the mean kids in school, where do they always sit in the bus? In the back. In the classroom, where do the mean kids sit? In the back. And what do they do? They encourage others to sit in the back with them and get in trouble. Now, my house... My parents told me, if you get in trouble in school, you're trouble at home. And I grew up in the South, and when I was in the elementary school, you get a whooping from the principal. (laughs) And that was only in the 1970s and 80s when I was in school. The principal would whoop you in public school in the South. Then you go home, your mom and daddy will whoop you. So you get a double whooping. So I learned, do not sit in the back of the class. Sit up front. 
Pretend you can't see the wall. <laughs> Pretend you can't see. Just stay away from the back where the kids that get in trouble with the teacher are. The ones that get in trouble on the bus, you stay away from them, right? You, because uh, sinners and sin love company and love to want to bring you to their ways. You have to stay away from it. A wise person does not humbly submit themselves to sin. They don't do it. So the truly happy person avoids these lifestyle choices, the actions, the words, the attitudes, the habits of those that despise God and are godless. Again, they are a mission field for the gospel. They're not your closest circle of friends. You need to reach out to them with the gospel, but they're your mission field, not your closest inner circle of who you rely on, according to the scriptures. So they avoid the, the, the counsel of the godless. Happy people avoid the lifestyle of sinners who want to do nothing but sin against God and break his word. Thirdly, they avoid the throne of the scornful. The throne of the scornful. This is a very interesting passage. Uh, in Hebrew it says, uh, he that sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Sitteth means to habitually or permanently dwell somewhere. So someone plants down and they never move from this position. They sit down in the seat and that's where it gets hot. In the seat. That's the Hebrew word that could either mean a common person's chair that you and I would sit in or the throne of a ruler. And this is where it comes, this is where the scorn comes in. And the throne of a ruler. So sitteth not on a throne of the scornful, of a scornful person that continuously, without end, always, 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 you can mark it down as reliable as the sun that rises, as the clock that ticks, as the waves come upon the shore. The scornful continually express contempt and disdain for others. They mock them and they ridicule everything about them like a wicked, entitled human king sitting on his throne or her throne if it's a queen. Sitting in the seat of the scornful, continually having discontempt, disdain, mocking, ridiculing, running people down. The godly person avoids the throne of the scornful. They don't prop themselves up as a king. That Anything they don't like, they scorn. Anyone they don't like, they scorn. They scorch. It's scorched earth. They just run them into the ground. A living example, or like the period books and films about the 1700s and the 1800s on the BBC. There's lots of Jane Austen and period books, people living in the 1700s and the 1800s on the BBC and other film companies. In these stories, there are usually two young people in love who have to secretly hide their love and affection. One person is due to inherit a great fortune, and the other one is either not as rich or as poor. Usually a curmudgeon pessimistic, disapproving, older relative uh, demands the right to choose their mate for the younger relative. The older, negative, frumpy relative is usually in charge of the young person's inheritance and holds this over their head until either they get sick of it and they elope and they just leave the money behind or the old curmudgeon dies and is out of the way and they inherit. That's the subtext of every Jane Austen novel, basically. Young couples coming together. Some older person does not want them together. They want them to marry the mega rich, which they have no ability to do. And they break little couples up. But in the end, it all happens well. They end up together, right? That's happily ever after. Hallmark has this. BBC has this. All these period uh, type of movies from the 17s and the 1800s. Those lives. That's what this person is who's scornful. Like that hateful old person keeping two a couple apart. Therefore, a man that is truly happy in life does not habitually mock, 
ridicule or treat others with contempt and disdain like a frumpy old king sitting on a throne barking out demands that everything be done his way at all times. That's what the scripture says. The scornful, they're constantly barking out orders as if you were to fall at their feet. A godly man does not do that. A godless man does, or man or woman does this. And the scripture says, avoid the throne of the scornful. Avoid that life. That's the life of a godless person. Happy is the person who avoids this altogether, who walks away from that who does not habitually mock and ridicule others. The truly happy man avoids these people and realizing they're your mission field, they're not an amiable friend in any way. You will never be their friend. Nothing's ever good enough or right enough for them. They're scornful. You try to reach them with the gospel. They're not your friend. You will not be their friend at any point. A happy person realizes that and stays away. So the negative in this psalm here, things to avoid, uh, the psalmist gives us, Now let's transfer to the happy part, the encouraging part. Now that we've slammed on the hard parts, what are the happy parts here in this psalm? Well, that's our next verse. A man is happy or a woman is happy because what they embrace. So they stay away from what's evil and godless, but they embrace what's right in life. And what do they embrace? The scripture says there, his delight is in what? His delight is in what? I still don't hear you. His delight is in what? The law of the Lord, God's word. So an exact opposite, it says there, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The exact opposite contrast, but his delight. In exact contrast to the godless, the psalmist is going to explain the secret to life of great joy and happiness. Great joy, great happiness, great contentment, great fulfillment is found in his word. It says, but his delight. Delight there means to wholeheartedly embrace something with every part of your being, your heart, your soul, your mind and strength, you embrace it with all that you are. It means to hold close to you like hugging a relative or a loved one. You embrace it and you never let it go from your heart. You never let it go from your mind like a embrace of a husband, a wife or a parent or a child or loved ones. When you embrace, you hang on, you don't let go. Like the people at the airport <laughs> doing drop-offs. I had to drop my wife off. She had a, she had a trial in L.A. She had to go to L.A. Uh, last week. And I hugged her. I didn't want to let her go. Like, oh, I love how she smells. I love how she looks. Don't go. But then they, burp, 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 they blow the whistle and do the thing. You've got you to let them go when they have to go in because you have to leave. The police will shoot you off. Nobody parks at the departures at SFO. You just hug them and you never want to let go. You embrace them and you never want to let go. That's how we should be with God's word. Are you that way? Do you embrace God's word and hug it and hold on to it, love it, and don't want to let it go? He, uh, the happy man who is with great joy and happiness delights and embraces and holds on to God's word. The word law there is Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the first five books of Moses. <clears throat> They're written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Moses. It gives instructions of happy life. And it's very interesting there. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Is Lord capitalized in your Bible? L-O-R-D. What does that mean? It means Jehovah. It means Yahweh. It's God's personal name. I don't know. This is out of touch for some generations, but when I grew up in the South, you never called your parents by their first name. You never called your boss by their first name. I never, I worked for a law firm for six years. The attorney was attorney William A. Cox III. I never called him Bill or Billy or whatever. I always called him Mr. Cox. I always showed him respect. That's how we were raised, at least in our family. Because my grandma would pinch you if you didn't do it right. (laughs) 
<laughs> she would pinch you or swat you with a flashlight or swat you with a switch. So you had to say, yes, sir, and no, sir, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. You never call someone older than you that you respect, teachers, coaches, pastors, boss. You never call them by their first name. Here, God is using his first name. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, his first name. He's on a first name. You're my friend. You're my child. You're my beloved. You call me by my first name. The true and living God in the Bible who loves and cares for his people invites that close relationship with you, calling him by his first name. His delight, his embrace is the law of the Lord, his God, who he's on a first name basis with. There's millions and billions of people around this world who do not know who God is. They would never, ever call him by his first name. They would never, ever deem to approach him. They feel so sinful. They do all sorts of rituals in their religion, but they would never, never, never dare to approach God the way the scripture says we should. Coming before the throne of grace, walking with God, loving God, knowing him. So the truly happy man embraces God's word and delights in it. Happy believers are on a first-name basis and in a loving relationship with their Heavenly Father, who's the Lord of this universe. Therefore, we need to wholeheartedly embrace and hold on to the principles of Scripture because they're the one true source of spiritual life and true happiness. We cling to those Scriptures. We cling to the Word of God. We embrace it. So we embrace the law of the Lord. The second thing we embrace is pondering on the ways of God. We ponder on the ways of God. So it says the scripture, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, his Torah, his Bible, in his law doth he meditate day and night. The happy man thinks about the teachings of God's word over and over again. The Hebrew word there means to meditate means to give serious thought and consideration by saying something over and over again softly to yourself. So thus you're memorizing God's word. You're saying it over and over to yourself. You're pondering it. You're thinking on it. You're giving serious thought and consideration. And you're memorizing God's word over time. That's what it means to meditate. That's the exact opposite of what you see in the media and you see in this world today. Whoops, let me tell you something else first. Like when I was trying to memorize, when I was a little boy, I'm not a math genius. I could do business math. I could do accounting bookkeeping math. I could do statistics and a little bit of school math. When it gets to the hard math, I can't do it. In fourth grade, when I was a short little chunky boy, we had to learn our multiplication tables. I don't know what it is about fourth grade. I didn't like my fourth grade teacher either. Something about fourth grade. But anyway, I was trying to learn my multiplication tables. And my dad's an engineer, math and science. That's his thing. So he's sitting there, Brian, this is how you do this. This is how you do multiplication. He's showing me over and over every night for hours, for hours. I'm sitting there, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't figure this out. I don't know how to do this. And my mama walks past the table because I'm just like her. And she goes, Brian, just sing it. Three times three is nine. Six times six is Thank you. Six times six is 36. I forgot my song. Six times six is 36. Find the word, find the rhythm in the words, and it'll help you memorize. And boom, I started memorizing them. After hours, I can't learn this. Why do you make me do this? And of course, my sister, my younger sister, Dr. Deborah Kelly with a PhD in biophysics and does cancer research. Oh, this is easy. She just spits it out. Genius. And I'm like, I can't learn this. Until my mama, who's artistic, says, just sing it, Brian. Just sing it. Just sing it. Right, find that rhythm. That was a foreshadowing that I was created by God to do music and not math or engineering like my dad and my sister. I'm not, that's not my world. 
But meditating at three times three is nine. If you just say it over and over again, you memorize it. But until there was something musical about it, it didn't stick with my brain. Just plain facts that my dad and my sister can just, just put in their heads. They've got that gift. They can do it. But I had to sing it. So I learned my, math, my, my multiplication tables. And this day, Deborah will ask me something. She's trying to figure out how many cups of this or how many uh, teaspoons of this. I sing the little song, and I can tell her how many ounces it is or whatever. I sing the little song. She'll go, what's this times this? And da 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 and there it is. You rehearsed it. You've said it over and over again until it's just wrote. You just know it. That's how we have to be with God's word, to meditate on it. We re- rehearse it. We say it over and over again. We ponder on it, and we think about it. Okay, in the media and in the world today, meditating is not presented that way. Meditating to the world is sitting out in the beauty of creation somewhere in a posture. And you think about all that I want to be, all that I want out of life, all those that I love, everything that I want for me that I like in my life and how I want it to be, I'm going to put it out of the universe and sit in the woods or on the, in Yosemite and think about it. And I'm going to meditate and find my dreams. That's what the world says, right? That's the world's portrayal of that. That's not scripture at all. Meditating is rehearsing God's word, his clear words in your heart, in your mind. What the world has you do is think about you and think about your plans and your will. And according to the scriptures, that's not what we're to embrace. We're to embrace God's word. We meditate on his word, his plan for our life, his direction for our life. And the scripture says he meditates day and night. So all throughout the day, you're thinking of, how could I apply this passage I read this morning? How could I apply this verse I'm memorizing? How could I apply these things to my life? How can I embrace them? How can I ponder on them? And here specifically, it says the Torah or the book of Moses, but it's the whole of God's word. So a truly happy person delights in God's word, and he finds practical ways to apply God's word to his life any time of day, morning, afternoon, evening and getting God's wisdom. So the source of true happiness of life is only found in the Lord. A person is happiness when they walk with the Lord. They're happy because they avoid certain things in life, and they're happy because they embrace certain things in life. Out of a closing illustration I'd like to read you, it's an extended one, so hang on, put your seatbelts on, and here we go. Eleanor Porter was born in Littleton, New Hampshire, in 1828, and she studied at the New England Conservatory of Music at Boston. My voice teacher taught there, or, or studied there. I'm like, oh wow, that's just like Nick, my voice teacher, the New England Conservatory, wanting to be a singer. She developed a following in the Boston area and poured herself into Christian music and singing in church choirs. But by the early 1900s, her writing instincts and, and talents had taken over, and several of her short stories began appearing in popular magazines. Her first novel was published in 1907, and her most famous work, Pollyanna, appeared in 1913. Has anybody seen that movie, Pollyanna, from Disney? It's old. It's older than me. It's old. (laughs) That's an old movie with a little blonde girl who, even if everyone around her dies, is just like, well, well, at least I can get to the supermarket faster. She'll always come up with some happy thing, even there's death and destruction and misery all around her. Oh, well, blah, 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 blah. Little Blonde Girl. you never seen that movie? It's a Disney movie. It sold over a million volumes and spawned a whole line of books. Uh, and then Disney and the BBC had it as movies. The word Pollyanna even became a part of the American vocabulary in the Webster's Dictionary. Pollyanna means someone who is excessively happy. 
So, hmm, does that go along with the Psalms? Hmm, are we supposed to be excessively happy? Is that what it looks like, the little blonde girl in the Disney movie? Hmm. That's where the problem lies. When we think of a Pollyanna now, we think of someone who is foolishly optimistic or excessively happy because they deny reality. And that's what I think. Like, hmm, she's denying real life. She's not, the elevator doesn't go to the top. Or her living room's not full of furniture. You know, all those little stories we tell for someone, the elevator doesn't go to the top. That's how she comes across. But the book doesn't really present her in the right light. It tells of a little girl whose father was a minister who died leaving her an orphan. Her only relative was an unpleasant and extremely harsh aunt in Vermont who took her in. But Pollyanna was an optimist who sometimes managed to find a bright side to everything. Her favorite word was glad, and she was always playing a game she made up called the glad game, something her pastor father taught her, trying to find in every situation, no matter how bad, to be glad about it. Her cheerfulness eventually began to transform her aunt into a pleasant and loving person. And in fact, the whole town became different because of this little girl whose favorite verse was, a cheerful countenance brings forth joy to the heart. But the real question of the book is what's behind her optimism. Why is she ferociously happy all the time? Like much of early fiction, uh, Pollyanna was written from a Christian perspective. There's a very tender chapter in the middle of the book in which the town pastor is discouraged to the point of resignation and leaving. Things had gone, didn't, hadn't gone well at the church, and people were critical and divided. He rode into the forest to ponder things, but his spirits were lower than they'd ever been in his life. Pollyanna, playing in the woods, saw him and noticed he was depressed and went to go talk to him. And as they're talking, she says, I know how you feel, Pastor, she said as they talked. My father used to feel like you too lots of times. I reckon pastors do, generally, most of them do. My father grew mightily discouraged until he found his rejoicing texts. His what? Well, that's what my father used to call him. Of course, the Bible didn't name him that, but it's all those that begin with, be glad in the Lord, rejoice greatly, shout for joy, and all that, you know, such a lot of them. Once my father felt especially bad, he counted them. There are 800 of them in the book, in the Bible. 800? Yes, that told you to rejoice and be glad, you know. That's why my father named them his rejoicing texts. Father said that if God took the trouble to tell us 800 times to be glad, to rejoice, <coughs> he must want us to do it. And Father felt ashamed when he hadn't done it more. After that, we got to be so com- such a comfort to him, you know, when things went wrong, like the time the ladies' ministry got into a fight. Why? It was those texts, Father said, that made him think of, the, uh, of walking in gladness. Thus we learn from her cheerfulness, her cheerfulness wasn't airheaded escape from reality into fanciful world of positive thinking. It was a simple faith learned from her father, trusting God and relearning to rejoice at all of life's ups and downs and ins and outs. So blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight his embracing is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day or night. And as you do that, and as you rejoice in God's word, there's happiness, there's joy, there's rest in the Lord. We come to follow the example of this godly man that's happy because what he avoids in life, 
and what he embraces in life down here in Psalm number one.